Thank you, Todd. Good morning, everyone. Kids, hope you have a great time in Gospel Project together. Thank you to those of you who are uh, teaching them this morning. Uh, <clears throat> you can probably hear it. I'm a little under the weather. So um, those of you in the front, a couple of rows, there's a high likelihood you will get some shrapnel when I sneeze. And those of you in the back, don't be, don't be sad. I will make sure to gargle and snort and sniff and all those fun things. So thank you for your, uh, your graciousness with me. A lot of babies today. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. We love kids. Um, this morning, please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 1. If you're new with us today, we uh, most often here at Church on Mill will work our way paragraph by paragraph through books of the Bible, seeking to listen to what God would tell us uh, in His Word. And this morning, uh, Aaron Ho is going to come read for us. Come on up, brother. Aaron's going to read from uh, Philippians chapter 1, and the verses will be on the, the screen. Todd, what'd you do with your mic? Here, grab it from me, would you? Aaron, that way. Excellent. Great. Come on up. This is Aaron. Aaron is a junior? Sophomore. Sophomore. Sorry. That hurts. Aaron's a sophomore at ASU as part of the student leadership team. We're grateful for you. So read for us, brother. Appreciate it. Uh, maybe you read the story or watched the movie about Aaron Ralston. Does that ring any bells? It will in a moment. Um, Aaron is the guy that was hiking in Utah and fell in a slot canyon, got his arm lodged between a large boulder and the canyon wall, and stood there for five days using all of the water and supplies that he had until the very last drop. And he realized, I'm not going to get out of this alive. No one is even looking for me. So naturally, what did he do? He cut his arm off, wouldn't you? So he had been chipping away at the rock with his pocket knife, um, so it was good and dull. And it took him about an hour to cut through his arm. Then this dude climbed the rest of the way through the canyon, rappelled 65 feet, and hiked almost eight miles. He came across a family who was out hiking, and they gave him uh, Oreos and water and went for help. So I guess Oreos really are the world's best medicine. <laughs> Aaron had an extraordinary will to live. The event was later made into a movie uh, called 127 Hours. There are other less well-known similar stories, though. Let me tell you about just one of them. A guy named Donald Whitman was clearing land he was planning to build a house on in Pennsylvania when the tree he was sawing snapped, 
knocked him to the ground and pinned his leg underneath it. Ouch. Uh, He tried to dig out the dirt to where he could pull his leg out, but after he got past the topsoil, he found a large rock and could no longer move his leg. So what did he do? Of course, he had a $3 pocket knife and he cut his leg off just below the knee, drug himself 150 feet to his tractor, drove to his truck, and then realized, um, I have a clutch. So he had to use a tool to mash the clutch down while he drove with his remaining leg for help. He was 37 years old when this happened, and he simply said, it's too early to go out like this. Wow. In both of these stories, we see the shockingly powerful drive of human beings to battle to stay alive. Those are extreme cases, but you've likely seen that in friends and family. People who face very significant odds, and yet they continue to press on that battle, that drive to live. But for what? What would compel someone to chop their arm off or to cut their leg off, that they wanted to live that much? Beyond the natural human instinct to fight for life, what is life really for? Have you asked yourself that ever? What is life really for? We could consider that question in the form of of two statements. You may have heard it in the passage that Aaron read. It goes like this, for me, to live is, you can fill in the blank, wrong answer, churchy answer, to die is, you were more timid that time. There is a myriad of answers we could put in that first blank, right? For Paul, he said to live is Christ, but for most human beings, we probably have a different answer to put in that first blank. Maybe it's to live is power. Or to live is pleasure, or to live is leisure, or to live is to travel the world. To live is to become financially secure, independent, able to do whatever you want. To live is to have a family. What about you? What would you put in that first blank this morning? What's your ambition? Perhaps we could say it that way. What drove you to get up? every day this week. Now, there might be a few of us that stayed in bed, but the majority of us got up every morning and did the things we were supposed to do. Ambition is sometimes um, mocked and decried, but I think that's really unfortunate. Ambition is actually a wonderful thing. Ambition is necessary for survival. Ambition is a great thing. We all desperately need motivation to survive. And when something doesn't let up, when something compels you to continue to press on, that's when you're finding what your ambition is. So Christian or not, ambition matters. We all need it. Ambition is what propels a person with a chronic illness to continue to press on day after day after day. Ambition is what put people on the moon. It's what's sent hundreds of people climbing to the top of Mount Everest. Ambition will help you get through grad school and pass that dreaded dissertation. 
Abishan keeps the mother of twins going when she has no energy left, and it keeps the senior adult continuing to thrive despite constant pain. Ambition is essential for life. Are you with me? I'm about to snort, so I'm going to warn you. You want to do this? Do you have any Kleenex, dear? Thank you. I could use your, sh- your sleeve if you want to just come up. I've had tomatoes thrown at me before, but not Kleenexes. Jill, never mind. Thank you, Katina. I have ambition to not get snot in my mouth. We all have and need, in order to survive, something to live for. We must have ambition. But the question I really want us to consider this morning is related to the object of our ambitions. Not all ambitions are equal. Life is wasted when the wrong things fill those most important categories of our lives. Now, how do you know if your ambition is worth living for? Well, the answer is quite simple. Does death bring about the end of your ambition. Let me say that again. Uh, Thank you. Now I have them. One for each side. This is amazing. Um, Does death end your ambition? Let's track through that for a minute. Let's go back to some of those statements we made a minute ago. To live is power. Friends, some people, the very most important thing to them is attaining a position of power. And so everything in life is about reaching that place of power. It might be in business. It might be a government. It might even be with a family. But the drive is not to exercise authority in a way to give life to people, but to feel in control. For some people, that is what motivates them. That is their ambition. To live is power. But what does that make to die? It makes powerlessness. If your ambition cannot drive you past and continue to go past death, it's not worth living for. Another example. To live is travel. I did some research this week looking at what are particular people motivated by in everyday life today. Towards the very top of the list is the desire to travel and see the world. The world's amazing, isn't it? There are so many beautiful places. But if your ambition is to travel, then death brings about what? Never traveling again. If to live is to have a family, then to die is to be without your family forever. So how do you know if your ambition is worth living for? Well, you simply have to ask, will it continue after death? the very most important ambition will do so. And that's what we'll consider this morning. Paul put it this way, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And the message of this paragraph in the Bible is that we ought to pick our ambitions incredibly carefully. That if honoring, obeying, enjoying, and sharing Jesus is not our first ambition, 
then everything else we would put in that spot will lead us to ruin, that will lead to a wasted life. Anything or anyone except Jesus Christ as your highest ambition in life ensures that inevitably death will take away the thing you've lived for. And that doesn't make a lot of sense, to live for something that death will take. Let me give you a couple of real-life examples of how this works out. When you live for something that cannot continue after death, We can see this most clearly in people that actually reach their point of ambition and then they lose it. Most of us will never have that struggle. We will continue to have the ambition out in front of us and we'll spend the rest of our life seeking it, but we won't actually attain it. But there are a few people in the world who are particularly driven, intelligent, they're in the right place at the right time and they actually reach the thing they've been trying to reach. And then they discover when they lose it that that wasn't a life worth living. So a few examples. You'll remember likely, um, unless you're particularly young and you didn't own a house, that in 2008 there was a great um, housing bubble that burst and Phoenix was impacted um, in the top 10 of all metropolitan areas in the United States. A whole string of suicides happened in that season that reveal what we're talking about. Here's some examples. The acting CFO of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement when the company began to crash. The CEO of Shelton Good, who was one of the most important home auction firms at the time, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A money manager in Bertie Manoff's Ponzi scheme, slit his wrists in his Madison Avenue office. A senior executive of HSBC Bank also hung himself. When J.P. Morgan Chase bought a collapsed firm and decided not to hire the original firm's owner, that owner jumped off the ledge of the 29th floor of his office building. That's, those are only a few years ago. Those are all successful, accomplished, ambitious people who had reached the thing they were living for. And friends, whatever that is, if it's not Christ, it will not last. And so when you lose the ambition that you have attained, if it isn't Jesus Christ, there will be nothing left to live for. When the object of our ambitions evaporates overnight, we find there's nothing left. We're hollow and empty inside. That's why discerning your ambition is such an important thing. And I hope this morning that that is what we can accomplish together. This paragraph teaches us, what's this life for? This life is for Jesus. The ambition of believers is that we would honor Christ, that we would honor Christ. Life lived out in gratitude for God for saving us from our sins is a quality of life that nothing can take away. And Paul himself gives us this example that really your source of joy, of happiness, of contentment is not your health. It is not how much you have. It's not whether or not you have a family. It's something much deeper. It is Christ the center of your life. 
delighting in God, honoring God, sharing God with others, loving people. This is what enabled Paul to press through every single difficult circumstance he ever faced because not only death could take his ambition. Maybe we could summarize the paragraph in this way. When Christ is your highest ambition, boundless joy will fill your condition. To say it again, when Christ is your highest ambition, boundless joy will fill your condition. So, fellow Christians, those of you in the room who have trusted Christ already, are you living in such a way that Christ is actually the driving, motivating person of your life? I hope so. Let's read this passage again now that we have talked through some pieces of it and see if it enables us to understand more of what's being said. So, I'll just read exactly the same thing Aaron read, Philippians 1, the latter half of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Remember the setting. Paul, at this point, has been in prison for over two years. He is awaiting trial in Rome. For two years, this incredibly ambitious man has been unable to preach, unable to walk into a new city and meet new people, unable to freely share the gospel with the average person on the street, unable to meet with many leaders and coached them. He was completely dependent on others. And Paul was not the kind of guy that would have taken that without a fight. For years, he had been incarcerated. He's aware that his death is likely in the future, and yet this whole paragraph starts with the words, I will rejoice. That's weird, isn't it? Friend, how much is your state of peace and joy dependent on your circumstances? For Paul, in many cases, it had literally nothing to do with it because he had an anchor for his soul that held him through all the storms of life. This week, Paul opens his heart and shows us exactly how he thinks about the ongoing hardship he was facing. And in that way, he can particularly help us to be prepared for how we ought to think in times of hardship and trial. He gives us a way of thinking, not a particular formula that solves every problem. He says, when Christ is our highest ambition, boundless joy will fill our condition. Why? 
because Paul's ambition was to honor Christ in life and in death. He remained positive in whatever circumstances he faced because his driving passion was that Christ would be magnified no matter what. So can you imagine the guard strapped, chained to Paul who's telling him, you're likely going to get your head cut off. And Paul replies, to die is gain. And so the guard says, well, then maybe you'll just stay locked up for years and years and years and years. To which Paul replies, to live is Christ. So the guard comes back again, well, maybe it will be more, um, a, more of a difficult death. Maybe they'll do to you what they did to Braveheart. That's going to hurt really bad. Paul replies again, to die is gain. There is no way to beat someone like that, right? You cannot conquer that joy. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. An aging Christian once said to missionary John Patton as he was preparing to go to the South Sea Islands and share the gospel, this old man said to him loudly, you will be eaten by cannibals. To which Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Can you imagine not going to the South Sea Islands, but living in Tempe, Arizona, and living like that? Living with something inside of you that can't be taken when you get an unexpected bill, or when the doctor says it's cancer, or when you fail that class you worked really hard in, or when your girlfriend says it's over. Can you imagine living with a confidence that's unshakable? That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? That would be wonderful. Paul tells us how. He says, live with Christ as your ambition. God, all the pain would be gone if I were just dead and with you, yet there's more to be done, so I will press on in hardship. That's what Paul says. Paul had been persuaded that when Christ is first, then you end up giving your life away for the joy and good of people. Sometimes as I talk with people who are younger in the faith, they will often say something like, uh, Christianity is good for when you die and go to heaven, but it's not really particularly helpful today. You ever heard something like that? Some way, shape, or form. Or that person is so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. I'm pleased that many of you don't know that. That's a good thing. That's a bunch of garbage. My ear just popped, and I can hear. <laughs> this, is, this is to live and to gain. Friend, the more you get to know Christ, 
It's not that you become less and less concerned and useful to people in the world. It's that your eyes begin to move away from the mirror where you're constantly concerned about self out to the people around you. And then you experience the life-giving joy of being used by God to bless and serve and help other people. That's what life is for. And Paul says, I'm convinced that my life is going to continue, at least for the foreseeable future, so that I can get out of prison, get a nice house, eat often, and watch a lot of Netflix. No, he says, I want to live my remaining days for your progress and joy in the faith. Friend, you don't have to be a a preacher or an apostle to say that. You don't have to work in a church or a nonprofit. You can go through the everyday stuff of daily life and live with the passion to see people make progress in the faith. Can you imagine how freeing it would be to live like that? Self-denial for the eternal benefit of people. That's real life. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know if you're growing spiritually? Do you want to make progress in the faith? In churches like ours that are are cautious and careful theologically, that, that think through carefully the implications of what we do and say, it's easy for us to gradually become people who are full of head knowledge, but not impacted in the heart and not using our hands for the spiritual good of people. And so I would say to all of us, but to myself primarily, don't look first at growth and knowledge. Look at growth in love and sacrifice. Knowledge for knowledge's sake only makes people prideful and arrogant. But knowledge for the sake of equipping us to be transformed in the heart, that then we might be more able to love people and serve them. That's how the Bible is supposed to be used. Friends, every day, everything around us exclaims that life is about us. We are inundated with that message literally everywhere we go. But what if that dominant narrative we are spoon-fed from infancy is wrong? What if that is not actually how the world works? What if God has so wired things into the very fabric of the universe that life comes by dying to yourself, not by living for yourself. That progress and joy and life and happiness come not through self-centeredness, but through self-sacrifice. What if to live not to amass wealth or to have lots of sex or to get a great job or to become financially secure or even to have a family and travel the world with that family What if ambition to get those things and the intelligence and hard work that it requires to get them only lead you to a dead end? Would you please look in your own heart and see that that is the path you're headed on without Christ and that it's possible to be a genuine follower of Jesus but to slip away from Christ being your ambition and to begin living for other things again? Life can't be about what death takes away. Deep inside of us, we know there's got to be something more. And throughout history, the smartest, most accomplished people are often the most miserable people. Why? Because they've been the few that have actually reached 
their ambitions and found them lacking. But there is an ambition worth living and worth dying for. Amen? There is an ambition that death can't take away. Instead, death merely ushers in the fulfillment of it. That is to live for Christ. So brothers and sisters, live for Jesus Christ, honoring Him, making much of Him, pointing people to Him, serving others practically for Him, giving up yourself so that He might be praised. Whether you're eight or 80, that's what life is for. But how do you actually live like that? It sounds good in theory, doesn't it? And some of us in the room are type A's, so we will make a commitment today. I'm going to read my Bible every day this week. I'm going to pray every morning. I'm going to look for an opportunity each day to witness to somebody. I'm going to serve people in need, and I'm not going to say no when someone asks me for help. How long will that last? Friends, some of us won't make it a day. Some of us can do pretty darn well. You're the kind that wear night guards at night because you're just grinding it all the time, wearing yourself out. You know what I'm talking about? But none of us can persist in a godly life based on self-ambition. It won't work. And so, yes, we need to look at that big idea from this passage, but I would be doing you a great disservice if we didn't also ask, how is it that Paul actually lived like that? Not just wrote it in this particular instance, but each day lived in that way. How does that happen? Well, there's all kinds of clues in the passage, and I just want to take a few more minutes to point out four of them to you. And then the conclusion we're, we're pointing forward to today is to take the Lord's Supper together as Christians. And so as we go through these, I would invite you to do some self-reflection, to confess sin where it's needed, to consider, are you in harmony with brothers and sisters in Christ as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper? How do you actually live a life with Christ as your highest ambition? This passage gives us multiple clues. One, I think may surprise you. It's pray for the Spirit to be the supply of strength and courage your pastors need. Did you catch that that's what Paul is actually doing in this whole paragraph? He is not arrogantly saying, I've got it all together. Follow me. I have reached the pinnacle of spirituality. There's Jesus and just a little bit lower is me. It's not at all what he's saying. Instead, he's asking the church to pray for him that he might continue to be a person of courage, that he might press on with a Godward ambition. So church members, I would ask you something I have not done near enough. Would would you pray for me? Would you pray for your staff? Would you pray for your transition team? Why? Because we are feeble, weak people just like you. And a large part of where you go spiritually will be directly connected to where your leaders go. It is very uncommon for a church to move way beyond spiritually 
where its leaders are in their maturity. And so when you think about yourself and being a person of courage and ambition and passion, the first place to look is not inward. To look upward to God and then outward to your leaders and pray that God would give us courage. Every day that I stand here before you to speak, I'm well aware that this could be the week I fail in some tragic way that renders everything I've ever said to you null and void. Would you pray that I stay faithful to Christ? We need your prayers. Second, would you consider making decisions by asking, what's best for the progress of my church? What's best for the progress of my church? We often think of ourselves first, if not solely, in the decisions we have to make in life. We put the advancement of the gospel through our church family as a lower ambition than our own personal drive. And that's not what Paul exhibits in this passage, is it? Paul has been going through an immensely difficult season. And he knows if they would just kill me, this would be finished. I'd be with Jesus. No more pain, hardship, trial, difficulty forever. Inside, that's what he wanted for himself. And yet, as he looked out, he saw people who still needed him. People who still needed the guidance of a mature believer. And so he processed his thinking about his life through the lens of what was best for the church in Philippi. What would happen in Church on Mill if we began to make decisions that way? If we began to think of the various issues we face in life, not primarily as lone individuals or even as families, but as a church. Should I take this job? Should I buy that house there? Should I take on this new project? Should I take up running another marathon? Do we have another child? Do we adopt a child? Do I pursue that relationship or just let it lie? What if the first and driving, most important, significant question in any of those decisions is not what's best for me, but what's best for God's people? That's what Paul displays for us in this passage. When you have a small or a huge decision to make, don't make it in isolation. Allow your gospel community or someone that's discipling you or you're discipling in on the issues of your life so that we as a church, a family, can help you process what would most honor Christ? What would most honor Christ? And then finally, learn to live a gospel-first life, not through self-determination, but through reliance on God. Those of you in the room that are type A like me, this is the most important thing you could hear today. You cannot serve Christ in your own strength. Even if you do the right thing, you cannot do that on your own. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. 
Friend, become a person of confidence, but not self-confidence. Become a person of sufficiency, but not self-sufficiency. Be a person of reliance, but not self-reliance. Paul asked them to pray that the Spirit would be the supply for the needs that he had. And when we get up tomorrow, what we need is not to try harder, but it's to give up and say, God, if you don't do this through me and in me today, I cannot do it. Many of you have heard of St. Patrick because you like green beer. Patrick was a missionary to Ireland in the 5th century. And believe it or not, there's a lot more to that guy than green beer. He wrote one of the most beautiful, ambitious, tremendous prayers I have ever read. Would you listen to it? As I arise today, may the strength of God pilot me. May the power of God uphold me. The wisdom of God guide me. May the eye of God look before me, the ear of God hear me, the word of God speak for me. May the hand of God protect me, the way of God lie before me, the shield of God defend me, the host of God save me. May Christ shield me today, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to my right, Christ to my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ when I stand, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Amen. That is the prayer, the cry of someone who wants to live as their ambition to honor Christ and knows that they cannot do that on their own. Would you make that your prayer, brother or sister, to live in the power of the gospel. Now, it's our privilege as a church to every week have usually dozens of people here who have not yet trusted Christ. We're glad that you're here as a joy and an honor to sing in such a way that you can watch, to pray in such a way that you can hear, and to open the Scriptures together. You may be asking, what in the world is that snorty guy talking about? How do you live for God when you can't see Him? And how can you trust a God when there's so much pain in the world? The fundamental message of the Bible is not behave well and God will love you and accept you. The fundamental message of the Bible is You have not behaved well, and you are sick, even dead, inside. And yet God desired that none should perish, but that all should come to Him. And so He gave Himself. God, in a great mystery that I will never fully understand, left heaven, added a body, lived a sinless life in order that he could die a sacrificial death. So God took all the sins of every person who would ever believe on him, put them on Christ so that when Christ died, 
the sinner died too? And then miraculously, three days later, Christ rose from the dead to demonstrate victory over death and that the Father had accepted that sacrifice. And so the message of Christianity is not turn your behavior around and start doing a lot of external churchy things and then your life's going to get better and God will love you. Friend, the message of Christianity is while you were yet dead in your sin, Christ died for you. And if you would but see him as King and Lord and Savior and turn from a life where you're in charge to a life where he's in charge, then you will be saved. You'll be rescued out of darkness and brought into light and given a fresh start. That is the message of Christianity. And so I would ask two groups of people here today two different questions. One, to the Christians in the room, are you living in the power of the gospel? Another way to say that, is Christ your greatest ambition? Can you pray the prayer that the green beer guy prayed? If not, before we come to the table to take the Lord's Supper together, would you repent of that sin and accept the forgiveness that God so freely gives? And others of you in the room who have not yet accepted Christ, as we stand and sing and many people will come out to these tables to partake of a, a memorial, a remembrance of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. Would you come to me standing here in the front or to someone you came with and say, I, I want to know more about Christ? Would you help me? Would you tell me more? And then you could have the joy and privilege if you accept Jesus of partaking. Friends, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful passage. We are in such need of having godly ambition. I pray in particular for those in the room who have yet to accept Christ and would ask, God, that you would shine the light of Christ on their hearts, open blind eyes, open deaf ears. All of us share equally that we were born in sin and then willfully chose to continue in it. Some of us you've rescued out and we would ask God that now you would rescue more. So I pray for courage for anyone in the room who may need to approach me or another leader or a friend and hear more about Christ. And God, for the rest of us as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, may we first do the assessment of our own hearts my living with Christ as my greatest ambition. Did Jesus motivate me Monday through Saturday of last week? Or am I living for myself? Father, I pray where there is conviction needed that it would fall heavy and that it would come quickly 
and that then following it, Lord, would be your compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.